Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. God is gracious to forgive and to make you new again. He takes sinners and dashes them into pieces against the rock of Christ. To some, Christ becomes the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. But to you, to his covenant children, who with a humble and contrite heart seek forgiveness at the cross of Christ, to you he is the chief cornerstone of the temple of the Almighty God. And you have been made to be a part of this house as Christ has made you a living stone and placed you in this holy temple that will one day fill the world. So brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. The reading of God's word this morning begins in the first in 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Hannah prayed and said, "My heart exalts in Yahweh, My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies, because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is no one holy like Yahweh. Indeed, there is no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for Yahweh is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. Yahweh kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Yahweh makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's, and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with Yahweh will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and will exalt the horn of his anointed. We'll turn now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in their thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Now please take your bulletin, turn to the back, and we'll read together as a congregation, Psalm 18, verses 43 through 50. 
Psalm 18, verse 43. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations, people whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I was informed this morning that there is one among us who was in the habit of taking bets on the sermon in order to encourage their children to pay attention. The guilty shall remain nameless, but they have since repented of this practice. (laughs) At least so I'm told, although I'm suspicious that it might have been a ploy to uh, get certain words out of my mouth. So with that aside, we're going to look at Psalm 18 one more week. Uh, And if you recall, the first week we looked at Psalm 18 and we were examining the outer structure, so looking at the parallel between God's rescue of David and then God's training of David to defeat his enemies. And primarily in looking at that, we thought then about the application to us to sing this psalm in the first person. And again, last week, we looked at the central part of this psalm and David's singing then that you have rewarded me according to my righteousness. And and again, thinking about that as a first person replacement. So understanding what David said and then how we would follow in the footsteps of David. Today what I want to do is a a little bit different, so we are going to take a thoroughly Christological approach to this psalm and put ourselves in a different character in the psalms, and and this is entirely appropriate. We'll find from the New Testament that this psalm is to be sung by Christ and for us to sing it with him. And so there's some implications that come out of that as well as a direct application to us the way that Paul applies this psalm. And so that's where we're, we're driving at this morning, but we're going to look at a few scriptures along the way. So I want to start then at the beginning of 1 Samuel where Hyde read to us Hannah's song. And just so you know what, what we're doing, we're going to look then at the parallels. So we're, we're making an analogy, uh, which is... The way the Bible operates frequently, he calls us to look at one thing and then there's a comparison so that we see, we see an aspect of God that's highlighted. And the comparison we're going to draw then is Hannah's song in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 2 bookends the, the, the book of Samuel. So it, it, it is related both in words and subject matter to 2 Samuel 22, which is the same song as Psalm 18. 
So the, the whole book then is bookended by, by these two songs. And then we see Psalm 18, and there's a relationship to Psalm 2 in the Psalter. And there's a comparison there. And then finally, there is another comparison in the New Testament where Hannah's song is reflected in Mary's song at, before the birth of Christ. And so there's some analogies are drawn for us then in how to think about ourselves. And then we'll, we'll conclude with Paul's application of all of this. So if you would, let's pray as we look into God's word. Father, we thank you that your word is true and unshaken, that you remain even where men fail. Lord, we ask that we would truly look to you this morning, that you would cut away sin and uh, false thoughts about you as we look into your word. We want to know you. We want to be transformed to be like you. And so help us to have open ears to hear your word and to consider the majesty of our God and all that you have done for us. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah, Hannah sings, and it's a prayer, just like, just like the Psalms. It's a, a prayer given in song. And, of course, we all know that Hannah's, Hannah's song is given after God's response. And I just want to look at her first prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and uh, we'll, we'll look in verse, uh, verse 9 and 10. Of course, she's the wife of Elkanah. He had two wives, and Hannah like many of, uh, of the patriarch's wives, was barren. And because of this, uh, Penina was antagonizing her. She was, as we see in verse 6, she was her, her bitter rival, and she would provoke her to irritate her. And so Hannah is bringing this, this complaint, a lament before God, and she does so after the feast. So in verse 9, Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh, and Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of Yahweh. And so the high priest Eli is there. He's sitting at, the, at the, the door of the temple in the place of judgment. And Hannah's greatly distressed. And so she prays to Yahweh there at the entrance of, of the temple of Yahweh. And she made a vow and said, O Yahweh of hosts, verse 11, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to Yahweh all the days of his life, and a razor shall not come on his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before Yahweh that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my lord. I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before Yahweh. Do you consider your maidservant a daughter of Belial? It's a worthless woman, empty. So that, that word there is Belial. And so now we have set up the, the problem, which God is going to answer. Hannah has not one, but, but two oppressors. So one is in her sister wife, Penina, who is bitterly antagonizing her. She's making a judgment in the same way that Job's friends judged him. You don't have children because God is judging you. And then corresponding to that, we see Eli sitting at the door of the temple speaking for God and 
In her words, she says, are you considering me like a daughter of Belial? And so Eli himself is also antagonizing this lady. He's making a judgment. He judged that her prayer was the prayer of a drunk, worthless woman. She calls out to God, and God answers, of course, and gives her the son Samuel. And as, when he's weaned, so maybe around three years old, as she's, as she's dedicating him to Yahweh, bringing him to the temple again, this is her song, and this is what she sings. My heart exalts in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There's no one holy like Yahweh. Indeed, there's no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for Yahweh is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bow, bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were for full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. Yahweh kills, he makes alive, he brings down to Sheol, he raises up, Yahweh makes poor and rich, he brings low, he also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust, he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor, for the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's. And he set the world on them, he keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with Yahweh will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens, and Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. So just a couple observations here. One is the, 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 the song itself is, is an inclusio. So at the beginning she says, My heart exalts in Yahweh, my horn is exalted in Yahweh, and at the end he gives strength to his king and he exalts the horn of his anointed. Now, what I want you to notice here right at the beginning is there is not a king, right? So Hannah's song, he will give strength to his king and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. We're still in the period of the judges. There is no king in Israel. In fact, we haven't even seen the full disclosure of the king that's coming. This is before the nation asked for Saul. It's before there's any king sitting on the throne and Hannah's song is directed at God's king. And what we have to see about Hannah's song is, of course, it's bigger. It's bigger than just God's answer to her complaint about no children, about her barren womb and, and the answer of Samuel. There's a comparison set up between Hannah's judgment by Penina, by Eli, and then the false judges. So the false judgment of Eli in the nation of Israel. And we read last week that that the lamp was still lit, but it was dim. Eli's eyes were growing dim, so his judgment was poor. He wasn't acting or speaking like Yahweh would direct him. And so Hannah's song is, is an introduction that looks forward prophetically to all that God is doing. And it's an, it, it sees then the end of Psalm 22, where David, David exalts in God as the king, as the anointed one. And he proclaims all that God has done to seat him on the throne, to bring the nations in subjection. And that, that end of the book is, is God's ultimate answer to Hannah. And so what you see embedded in this psalm is a series of great reversals. 
And the reversals are something that, that the weak can do nothing about, and that's, it's important to, to notice. So we'll, we'll walk through them quickly, but just, just thinking first off, Hannah before Eli, she, she does not have the authority to remove Eli from office. There's nothing she can do about his judgment. There's nothing she can do about Penina's judgment of her either, except for call out to God, because she does not have authority. And that should sound familiar, because as we move through the book of Samuel, when David is being pursued and aggressively persecuted by Saul, his own, his own announcement is, I don't have the authority to take Saul's life. I may be anointed by God, and this may be unjust, but I do not have the authority to respond. And so all David can do, like Hannah, is call out to God to remember his covenant, to, to bring life where there's death. And so Hannah's song, you can look in the beginning, it, it's personal, but it grows and grows and grows. It grows from the personal response to a national and then international response in which she says, I am lifted up. I'm, my horn is exalted in Yahweh, and my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. I rejoice in your salvation. And, and she's looking forward to the fullness, then, of what God is going to do through Samuel that ends with David on the throne and the nations bowed down. And, of course, we are going to notice and see that this is fulfilled, ultimately, of course, in Christ. And in a very real way, Jesus sits on the throne and sings Psalm 18 in 2 Samuel 22 and calls us to join him. But here in Hannah's song, she's confessing, and, and the, the very words should remind us of David's song at the end of his life, because they're parallel. She says, there's no one holy like Yahweh, there's no one besides you, there's no rock like our God. It's looking back on Deuteronomy 32, on Exodus 15, and it's the same language that David lifts up to God. Who is God besides Yahweh, and who is a rock besides our God? Well, the answer is no one. There's no rock like our God. Even even the enemies of Israel confess there is no rock like our rock, as Moses says in Deuteronomy. And so then she sings, Boast no more so very proudly, don't let arrogance come out of your mouth. And this is important. The problem in Israel, and Hannah's problem, is that those who are in authority have, have grown in arrogance. So they've taken over the position of God, and their judgments are unrighteous judgments. And when that happens, when, when the authorities that God place, and, and if you think about the realms of life, there's, there's an authority in the family, there's an authority in the church, and there's an authority in the state. And God places them there. And when you're in that relationship, and that authority is wicked, they've assumed the position of God, who is the ultimate authority of all. What can you do in the position of submission except cry out to God? There's nothing. Then we pray like Hannah prayed. And Hannah's, Hannah's song of thanksgiving is, I've seen the beginnings of God's answer in fullness, and so he's going to bring down the mighty from their thrones. And we see these series of reversals, and they're, they're based then on this statement, Yahweh is a God of knowledge, verse 3, and with him actions are weighed. Think about what David confesses in the middle of his song. You have rewarded me according to my righteousness and according to the cleanness of my hands, recompensed me. The confession is God sees. God sees the authorities that are wicked that have assumed the throne of God and with him actions are weighed and he will respond. And so there's this series of reversals 
that we need to notice now so that we understand then when we get to the New Testament what, what these are talking about. So first, he says, the bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. So the strong become weak, and the weak become strong. Remember David, David in his prayer, he says, God is the one that girded me with strength for battle twice. He's the one that outfitted me. He girded me with strength. Remember that David was but a small boy. He was the smallest of stature in that family. He's lifted, lifted me up. Secondly, then, those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. So God reverses, then, the, the, the fat and the hungry. And he, he, he makes the fat starve, and he fills the bellies of the hungry. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. We can see the immediate fulfillment from Hannah. It's ultimately fulfilled, then, in, in Mary and God's people as he takes... He takes the curse of the barren away and fills their womb. Yahweh kills and he makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. And this is the central confession. God exchanges death for life and life for death. And it should make us remember what Jesus said. In all of these reversals, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. In every, in every way, when Jesus comes, when God comes, he brings down those who have lifted up and shaken their fist at God, who have assumed his throne, and he lifts up those who are weak and feeble. Remember what David says. For you will save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you bring down. You abase. This is the character of God. He exchanges, verse 7, the poor and the rich. He brings low and he lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust, just like he raised Adam from the dust. And he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles. And we see then an expansion. They inherit a seat of honor, a throne. For the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's. Those pillars are not just talking about the, the physical foundations of the earth, but they're talking about people. You can see it in Psalm 144, 12, in Revelations 3, that the pillars of the earth, even in Galatians, we see that the pillars of the church are people. And God is the one that raises people up to power and authority. He invests them with authority, and when they use it unrighteously, he will tear them down. Because those pillars belong to him, he sets the world on him. And his purpose then, he keeps the feet of his godly ones. Remember what David says, you've kept my feet, you've kept my way so that my foot does not slip. You enlarge my path under me so that my, my feet are not shaken. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, his chesed. But the wicked ones are silenced in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. Those who contend with Yahweh will be shattered, and against them he will thunder in the heavens. You should hear there the echoes of what God did for David. God spoke, the Most High spoke, he uttered his voice, and he thundered in the heavens. He sent forth his arrows and scattered them, his lightnings in abundance and routed them. Because Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. The one who sits in the circle of the heavens looks down and looks on men. He knows and he weighs the actions of men and he will judge. And finally and fully he brings Psalm 2 to completion. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now in the Psalter, these two words, his king and his anointed, they don't appear together from Psalm 2 until we get to Psalm 18. There's the first ark in the, in the Psalter that goes together. We see the beginnings of the fulfillment of what God says. I've set my king on Zion. I've installed him on my holy mountain. And he will rule with a rod of iron. And he will shatter 
all those who oppose to him. And Hannah, looking forward in, in prophecy by the gift of God, she sees this fullness expressed in the coming King David and finally and fully in Jesus. So a few observations then. Because Samuel is composed in these bookends, and these, these may all be apparent to you, but we know the story of Penina and Hannah, but we've, we've already seen then it reflected in Eli and Israel. And I want to just make a few observations as, as in each of these repetitions to drive home the, the point of what God is judging. So remember that Eli judged Hannah. She, he, said, he said, you're a drunk woman, a, a daughter of Belial. And then in verse 12, right after Hannah's song, the sons of Eli were worthless men. It, it's sons of Belial. And so who does that make Belial? It's Eli. Eli is compared to the serpent of old. He's sitting in God's house. He's judging at his doorstep, but his judgment is becoming wicked. And you see that wickedness reflected in his children. They're children of Satan. To take up the words of Genesis or the words of Jesus in, in 1 John, his sons are sons of Satan. And we know that because they've taken the position of God. So verse 13, the custom of the priests with the people, when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged three fork in his hand, and he would thrust into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself, thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. And so his sons are taking from God's portion, from his sacrifice. And it says later on, that they're, they're growing fat. So verse 16, you must, the man's rebuking him, and he says, you must surely burn the fat first and then take what you, what you desire because that is God's portion, according to Leviticus 17. But Eli's sons have lifted themselves up in arrogance, and they are taking God's part. They're setting themselves on God's throne. And remember from last week that there is a relationship in which God in heaven looks down on his king and he shines on him with the sun so that he would grow up like fresh mown grass and the king shines down as a lamp on the people and he does the same thing. But if you reverse that order and the human king assumes then God's rule, then this song is appropriate. Whether, whether it's in the temple or in, in the wider government, as we'll, as we'll see, when men arrogantly take God's place, God will act. Verse 17 of chapter 2, Thus the sin of the young men was very great before Yahweh. The men despised the offering of Yahweh. And so we see then the sin of Eli, which is, which is brought down. And, and that, that story is going to take place over the next the next three chapters in which Eli, is, Eli, Eli falls and Samuel, as a young boy, is lifted up. And God exalts Eli, the one who is humble and brought into his house as nothing, and he exalts him, and there's an exchange then of places. If you turn to chapter 4. We see this come to fruition in chapter 4, verse 18. And it came about, uh, uh, sorry, some, some context here. 
the, the nation of Israel went to battle and things weren't going well, so they decided to send out God's ark. They said, well, if the ark of the Lord is with us, if the ark of Yahweh comes with us, then, then we'll be victorious. But, uh, of course, they're using God. They're taking him and, and using him as opposed to, uh, to confessing that he is king and lord. And so Yahweh goes into exile. The ark is taken and captured by the Philistines. And when this news comes back, there's a parallel in verse 18. It came about when he mentioned the ark of God, that it was taken, that Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was old and fat, and he judged Israel for 40 years. And so the, the falsely taken, stolen glory of Eli that we saw in his sons comes to fruition in the Father, and God brings judgment. He falls backwards under his own thievery and is crushed so that his neck is broken and God's foot, metaphorically, then is pictured on the neck of Eli, the one who was anointed but judged unrighteously and is now brought down from his throne. There's three more instances of this, uh, this, this reversal as you move through 1 Samuel. And in, in each case, they share, they share some context. So the very next one, the Ark of the Covenant has gone into captivity in, in chapter 4, and we find then that it's, it's dragged off to the house of Dagon in chapter 5. And so then look in chapter 5, verse 1. Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the Ashdodites arose early in the morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of Yahweh. So they took Dagon and set him in his place. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen into his face to the ground before the ark of Yahweh, and the head of Dagon and both palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold, only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. And so you see a direct parallel to Eli. Now the Ark of the Covenant has gone, but where God goes, those who are unrighteously in authority topple. So those who are large of stature, who are tall and reach into the heavens... They're brought down, and their head is crushed. And we see that then with this God, Dagon, in the house of the Philistines. All that happens is he falls down before God. They prop him back up so that we can notice the irony of lifting ourselves up against God. And then he falls again, and his head and his hands fall off. And nothing but the stump is left. And so God's judgment is complete, and you see this reversal then. God's Ark of, of the Covenant was brought into the house of this temple made low. It was the, the spoils of victory. These this were the subservient ones. God looked subservient, but in his power he brings the God of the Philistines down so that he's nothing. He's crushed before him. We find that humorous, but... It's, it's teaching us that in all aspects, those who lift themselves up to the stature of God will be judged. And so we see the same thing again in the story of Goliath and the David. He's like that. He's like Eli. He's like the, 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 uh, the false god Dagon. He's tall of stature. He's big. And David comes as a young man, a little boy, nothing in stature, with no armor. And what happens to, to Goliath? He's hit with the small stone, with a little rock, 
and he's crushed and his head is taken off. He's just like the God of the Philistines, so are the large men of the Philistines. They fall before God. Even though it seems insignificant, God brings down the mighty from their thrones. He takes those who were full and he makes them hungry and he takes those who are hungry and he makes them full. And so then the larger part of 1 Samuel, you see the, the, the final parallelism in the house of Saul and the house of David. The people ask for Saul. So turn, turn with me um, to chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. I promise we won't keep doing this. The people ask for a king in verse 5. They say, they say to Samuel, Behold, you've grown old. Your sons don't walk in your ways. Appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over you. And so God looks at it and he says, These people in their request for a king have rejected, not, not you, Samuel, but they've rejected me. And so Saul is lifted up as the king who will lead them out to battle instead of God. And we find that in the next chapter. So all this comes to fruition. Saul initially is righteous, but then he, he crumbles. He withers away under the light of the sun, and he refuses to repent. And so in the end of this story, Saul, who's taller than any other, we know from the next chapter, he's a big man. He's brought down. And by the end of 1 Samuel in chapter 31, he falls on his sword, and the Philistines cut off his head and his hands just like Dagon, just like Goliath. And so there's another reversal in which Saul is brought down, and David, who was nothing, is lifted up. 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18 are both a psalm of praise to God and a coronation of the king that he has lifted up to rule under him. And David's confession of this psalm is a confession that you are God. I love you, Yahweh. You are my strength. And so his confession is, I am not. Okay, so we see this list of, of reversals. Now, if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 1. And in Luke, we have another king on the throne and another high priest in the temple. And both the king and the priest have taken the authority that belongs to God, and they are false judges. And so there is a cry that's lifted up to God, and God, in his answer, places, places the Messiah in the womb of Mary, and she cries out to God in exaltation, just like Hannah. And Mary says, my soul exalts yet. My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed, for the mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation. 
towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones, and he has lifted up those who were humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, and he sent away the rich empty-handed. He's given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance, in memorial of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. And so we see then Mary's song is a reflection of Hannah's song. It's the same, same story. A child is given, and there's hope. Hope comes over a nation that's been subdued under wicked rulers because God gives a son. And Mary calls out, and she cries out to God, just like Hannah. And she says, I, I see. This is what's going to happen. I exalt in God my Savior because here, in the beginning, we have the, the beginning formation of God's answer. He's going to bring down the mighty from their thrones. He's going to exalt those who are humble. He's going to to fill the hungry, and to take away the rich empty-handed. And so this same reversal begins then with the coming of the Christ. That parallelism should beg us the question then. We should see the story of Jesus as parallel to the story of Samuel. Jesus is going to come, and along with him comes John the Baptist, a Nazarite like Samuel, and he's proclaiming the way. He's making way for the anointed, the king of the seed of David. And with it, the mighty will be brought down and the humble will be lifted up. And the end of that story then should result in a song like the song of David. So what I want to do, we're going to go back to Psalm 18. And you have to listen to it one more time. But as you listen this time, I want you to think about this song and, and see the song of not David, but Jesus. Jesus has been lifted up, exalted to the right hand of the Father, and this is his song. And so Jesus sings, I love you, O Yahweh, my strength. Yahweh is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon Yahweh, who's worthy to be praised, and I'm saved from my enemies. Jesus confesses that who God is, just like David. This is his confession. He calls upon God. And we see that then in the Garden of Gethsemane in verse 4, the cords of death encompass me. The torrents of Belial, the river of Belial terrified me, it assailed me, the cords of Sheol surrounded me, and the snares of death confronted me in my distress. I called upon Yahweh and cried to my God for help, and he heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry to help for help before him came into his ears. Remember what Jesus prayed. He said, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He called out to God in the heavens, and that was his cry. Now, it First, it looks like God did not answer. But then, on the cross, what do we see? The earth shook and quaked. It's exactly what Matthew describes for us. The earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the mountains were trembling. They were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and fire from his mouth, and coal was kindled by it. He bowed the heavens. He came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He sped on the wings of the wind. He, 
He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness a water, thick clouds of the skies, and from the brightness before him passed his thick clouds, hailstones, and coals of fire, and the Lord thundered from the heavens. Then the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones, coals of fire. He sent out his arrows, he scattered them, his lightning flashes, and routed them. Then the channels of water appeared, and the very foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Yahweh, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me on the day of my calamity, but Yahweh was my stay. He brought me forth into a broad place, he rescued me because he delighted in me. Our Savior did not stay in the grave. God lifted him up in response to his cry, in response as a, as, a, as a testament of his covenant faithfulness because Yahweh rewarded Jesus according to his righteousness and according to the cleanness of his hands, he recompensed him. And Jesus can cry out then, I have kept the ways of Yahweh. I have not wickedly departed from my God, for all his ordinances are before me, and I do not put his statutes away from me. I was blameless with him, and I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore, Yahweh has recompensed me according to my righteousness and according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyes. With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you show yourself twisted." For you save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you bring down. For you light my lamp, and Yahweh my God illumines my darkness. For by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. God was faithful in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The cords of death encompassed in the snares of Belial. The high priest with his false judgment. Herod with his false kingdom. They ensnared our Savior, and yet God in his faithfulness rescued him. He lifted him up, he drew him out of many waters, and he set him at his right hand, exalted to be king. And in that death and resurrection, his kingdom was declared. This is my son. Today I have begotten him. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And so then we see Psalm 2 worked out. The kings of the earth take their stand. They, they stand against, they whisper against Yahweh and against his anointed, but he will shatter them. And we see that then worked out. So in, in verse 30, it begs the question, if Christ is singing this, and I'll prove it to you in just a minute, if Christ is singing this, what does verse 30 on talk about? If he's been drawn out of many waters, raised up, recompensed according to his righteousness. As you move on in the story of Samuel and in the story of our Savior, what is verse 30 onwards talking about? As for God, his way is blameless. The word of Yahweh is tried. He's a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God but Yahweh, and who is a rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless. He makes my feet like hinds feet, and he sets me on high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arm can bend a bow of bronze. And you've given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand upholds me, and your gentleness makes me great. How does Jesus do that? How does God do that? 
Jesus, it says, remember in Hebrews 2, he learned obedience through that which he suffered. He was trained into maturity to take the kingship as a mature man. Trained so that his arms could bend a bow of bronze, but then how does he pursue his enemies? He does it through his body. Verse 37, I pursued my enemies and I overtook them. I did not turn back until they were consumed. I shattered them so they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you have girded me with strength for battle. You've subdued under me those who rose up against me. You should hear there that theme of reversal. Those who were lifting themselves up were brought down. You subdued. You brought down those who rose up against me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and I destroyed those who hated me. That, remember verse 40, you made my enemies turn their backs. It's talking about their necks. You made them turn their neck underneath me so that my foot was on top of them. I crushed them as an answer to Genesis 3. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman went to war. And the seed of the woman was crushed, was bruised on the heel, but the seed of the serpent was crushed on the head. He, Jesus stood on top of the oppressor. They cried for help, but there was none to save. To Yahweh, but there was none, but he did not answer. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I emptied them as mire in the streets. You've delivered me from the contentions of the people. You've placed me as the head of nations a people I have not known serve me. As soon as they hear me, they obey me. Foreigners submit to me. Foreigners wither, and they come trembling out of their fortress. Yahweh lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who executes vengeance for me and subdues peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely you lift me above those who rose up against me, and you rescue me from the violent man. Whether that be Eli, whether it be Dagon, whether it be Goliath or Saul or Herod or the high priest or Satan himself. God is the deliverer. He delivers from my enemies. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Yahweh. I'll sing praises to your name. He gives great deliverance to his king, and he shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his seed forever. And you should hear Hannah's song in it. It's the same end. He's lifted up his anointed. He's made him king. He's delivered him. He's set him at his right hand, and he's delivered him from all enemies. So we'll come back to that last section, but flip forward then to Revelation 12. You can see this story worked out in Revelation 12, and, and we won't go through the whole book of Revelation, but you can see again and again the same language used, that he, he, takes, he takes the waters and he, he, he parts them. He lays the foundations of the earth bare. He takes the pillars and he topples them, and he does it by riding on his cherub and flying, sending hailstones from heaven. Our God delivers Revelation 12, and a sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and a moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. This is the story of our Savior. So the woman 
the woman with a crown of 12 stars, Israel comes and she's in labor with a child. And that's where we see the song begins. Verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns on his heads, were seven diadem. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them on the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, Psalm 2. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So we see the story of the battle between our Savior Jesus and Satan. He's caught up into the heaven, and the woman flees into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was a war in heaven, and Michael and his angels waged war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, and, and he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So Jesus is caught up to heaven, to the right hand of God. He sits as king, and the battle continues. And in that battle, Satan is cast down. In the continuing battle, Satan is cast out of the heavens. And then we hear the voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to, dwell, to death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. This is the story of God's victory in and through his king. And he removes the accuser from before the face of God so that we can sing. And that's where I want to head to next. Romans chapter 15. Psalm 18 is quoted one time in the New Testament, which is somewhat surprising. There may be an allusion in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 13, which is also found in, in, in Isaiah 8, in which Jesus confesses, I put my trust in him. And, and it's a confession that takes place in the midst of Hebrews, the author of the Hebrews point that he calls himself our brother. And you'll see something similar here. But I want to end Psalm 18 taking Paul's application. Out of all of this, this story of the great reversal of God in which he, he lifts up the humble and he brings down the haughty. We have one verse quoted. So that verse is in, in Romans 15 and verse 9. So he says, For the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Of all of the magnificent display of God's deliverance, you find that an, as odd to be the, the only verse that's directly quoted out of this psalm. So what, what is Paul's point? I think the point is this. First of all, we look at this, and in verse 9, it's 
talking about Jesus. Jesus is the first person, I, in verse 9. I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. I will sing to your name. Jesus is the one that's cast as singing the song of David in Psalm 18. He is the singer. But he sings it, and so where do we find ourselves? We're right to sing it with him, but first we have to find ourselves as the nations with the foot on our neck. Therefore, I will sing your name among the nations, among the Gentiles, and I will, uh, I'll, sorry, I'll confess you among the Gentiles and I'll sing to your name. So Jesus is singing, but he's singing amongst all those who have been subdued. But the, the, the subjection is also a rescue of all the nations are around. So you think about David and and as the, the Philistines are conquered and the, the surrounding nations, for them it is a blessing. God lifts up those who are low, those who are set apart, and he lifts them up and he brings them into his kingdom. And so Paul's point is Jesus sings this and he sings it among us. His invitation is to sing it with him. And so when we come to Psalm 18 and we sing in the first person, it's a first person plural. We love Yahweh with Jesus who's singing it in front of us. He sings it first because God is the great deliverer and we sing it with him because first we were the nations, but God has lifted us up out of the muck and the mire that was cast out in the street and he's called us sons. He's made us so that we can call out and say, I love you, Yahweh. We love you, Yahweh, with our Savior Jesus. You are our rock, our fortress, our deliverer, our God in whom we take refuge. We call upon God because Jesus has been anointed and sits on the throne and has subdued us. And so I want us to think then from that perspective as the nations who've been brought into covenant with God and think about what Paul is asking then here. At the end of the book of Romans, he's entered into this discussion with the church and there is a division that has arisen between the weak and the strong, probably between the Jews and the Gentiles. That discussion, it, it, it takes place in chapter 14, and he says, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not to pass judgment on, on his opinions. One man has faith that he made all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let, him who, let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. So there was this division among the people, and, and they were judging one another for it. And I want you then to, uh, to skip down to verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not, put, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. If because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love, do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable, dokimos to God, and approved by men. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and a building up of one another, and do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. 
All things are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Skip to chapter 15. Now we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his building up. For even Christ did not raise, did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scripture we might have hope. Now may the God who gives you perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see there, God's purpose in putting his king on the throne is this, so that with one accord you may glorify with one voice the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's making us to sing. He's making us a choir, but not a choir of individual voices, a choir that sings together at the behest and behind our Savior Jesus. Therefore, verse 7, accept one another just as Christ accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing your name. And so his point then, we don't have a Jew-Gentile division, but there is an overriding principle found in this text that comes out of Psalm 18. And that principle is verse 7. Therefore, accept one another as Christ has accepted us to the glory of God. And so that, to put it in the inverse, whom Christ has accepted, we must accept. And the, the word is, is to take unto. To take unto. So whom Christ takes unto, we take unto also. And to bring it full circle, remember what Hannah, what, what Hannah was suffering under. It was judgment, the unrighteous judgment of Penina and Eli. So there's, there's then a, an application for us. Jesus has lifted us from the nations. He's made us to sing with Christ. And so we're lifted up to be with him so that we can sing all of those words in fullness and truth. What we cannot do is ascend in false judgment. So there is a true judgment. We read about that in 1 Corinthians. There is a time when we must judge our brother. And in fact, what we see with the story of, of Hannah is that she was in a predicament where ver within the very people of God, the authority, Eli, was wicked. And so she calls upon God. But what we see here is Paul's warning us. He says, don't lift yourselves up. So where God calls to judge, we must judge. But where he does not, we must lay ourselves down to please one another, to build up his body because he is the one that's victorious. He is the one that sits on the throne and we grow like grass in the sunshine when we are subject to him. To this end purpose, that with one accord, with one voice, we would glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how was Jesus lifted up? If you look back to verse 14, we see the reference to Isaiah 45 that's repeated in Philippians 
Philippians 2. God says, as I live, remember, David says, Yahweh lives. The covenant is true. He keeps his ways. As I live, says Yahweh, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall give praise to God. How is that accomplished? Through a great reversal. Have this attitude in yourself, which also existed in Christ Jesus, who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. And he was humbled even to the point of death, having been found in appearance as a man. Therefore also God highly exalted him and gave, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that every king will bow, every tongue and heaven and earth will confess that this Jesus is Lord. And it happened through this reversal. And so Paul in Romans, Paul in Philippians says, have this attitude, be like our Savior. We're bound unto the Savior, and together with him we sing a song of victory. We have a tendency to fight. God made us to fight enemies. But if we find them in the wrong places, then we will be fighting against God. And so let's pursue this with one voice that we might glorify God, our Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you would, stand with me and let's pray. Father, we confess that you have made our Savior Jesus the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one that sits on the throne who has the right to judge both good and evil. And you, in your great mercy, you have lifted us up to be a royal priesthood, a nation of kings and priests that come alongside and are united, made one with our Savior Jesus. And with this wonderful privilege, Lord, you call us to great responsibility to sing with our Savior Jesus, to sing a new song in the heavens that worthy is the Lamb to receive power and glory and honor and dominion. You, Jesus, are the one that's lifted up above us, and we confess that. Help us to do it as a, a confession in both word and deed. And Lord, we pray that as we sing together, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would sing as our choir director this song of victory. Help us to be pleasing to you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.